Um, I'm going to continue with a, a sermon this morning. I've, I've been preaching through, you might remember, a couple of sermons on 2 Timothy, and we're coming up to the next little chunk of 2 Timothy um, that we're going to be working through today. It's just a few verses. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1 from verse 15 to the end of the chapter. That's verse 18. I'm going to read from my good old trusty NIV 84. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he's often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord. On that day, you know uh, very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we pray as those readings we've heard now and as this reading from 2 Timothy now, as we just uh, have that sit on our hearts and rest on our hearts, we pray as we reflect on these particular words that your Holy Spirit might bring them to bear on our hearts and change us and reshape us and remould us to live for you this morning and tomorrow and the next day and for the days of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, tomorrow uh, morning I'm going to have breakfast, as you're probably keen to find out all about, but I'm going to have breakfast with a, a young fella, a young guy who I've had the uh, privilege, incredible privilege of discipling for almost a couple of decades now, um, since he was uh, in year nine at high school. Um, and as uh, a year nine kid, um, you know, not to be ashamed of reading the Bible with an older Christian, not to be ashamed of Jesus, that's a really big thing. I remember sitting out on the, the grass out front of a church out in public with this guy reading the Bible with him in year nine. And that, that would take guts, you know, really to not be ashamed for that young year nine guy there. And maybe you know someone, um, so you, know, you know what it's like to have someone that you've walked with perhaps um, over the years, maybe through thick and thin, through the ups and downs of your life. And you've seen them just walk with you, not be ashamed. It's a great uh, joy and privilege, really, to know someone like that. I remember uh, another Year 9 student, me, um, who was ashamed of someone who wanted to teach them the gospel and who did desert their youth group leader and, indeed, soon afterwards, Jesus. I remember standing at the front of uh, my high school, North Sydney Boys High on Falcon Street, and I remember the youth group leader, uh, and and he came to pick me up, and we went down to Macca's to read the Bible before school, as we would do. And, um, you know, I remember just being ashamed of this guy. I didn't want to be seen with this guy. The real reason was I just didn't want to be seen for being with Jesus from those people around my mates at high school. had a beautiful moment last year at summer school, actually, Tanya and I took a little breather, went down to the cafe, uh, down there where the uh, scenic railway is, in a nice morning, looking at the three sisters, sitting there having a hot chocolate with Tanya. That was beautiful in and of itself. Um, But this youth group leader came up to me. His name's Dave Lanham. He's a minister at French's Forest Anglican Church. And he came up to me. We had this wonderful, beautiful little moment of chatting. And we talked for about an hour and reminisced. And I, to my shame, just had to just recount how I felt why I, I did that and, and he recounted how he felt and what it was like and we both rejoiced that the Lord had brought me back and he was delighted just as I was too. Had that just 
precious little moment together of uh, reconnecting. He told me it was heartbreaking when I walked away, but joyful to hear that I was walking with the Lord again. Maybe you know similar stories in your life, you know, people who have perhaps deserted you and deserted the faith. Maybe people who stuck with you and stuck with the faith. And you probably know those sort of feelings that get stirred up inside you when you think of people like that. And I think that personally knowing these examples um, is a huge help in our Christian walk, but a huge help in our ministries. They're like big signs sort of standing up there and saying, you know, one big sign saying, don't go that way. Don't desert. And another big sign saying, do go that way. Don't be ashamed. Do go that way. And I think those two examples, they uh, are from Paul to Timothy. They're really just there, from Paul to Timothy. And they're like that. Two examples just from the bit of scripture we read. And this is the, this is the second letter from, uh, from Paul who's writing from his prison in Rome. He's writing to Timothy in Ephesus. He's writing at the end of his life. And he loves his son Timothy. As you'll see in chapter 1 verse 8, he's exhorting him to not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or be ashamed of me, his prisoner. That's the kind of heartbeat of what's going on here. And in the, the midst of Paul firing Timothy up for gospel ministry, it's like he sort of um, pauses mid-train of thought, mid-flow. And he gives these two examples, one of being ashamed and two of not being ashamed. And he bookends these examples with you know. In verse 15, you know about the deserters, especially for Gellus and Hermogenes. And verses 16 to 18, he gives the example of Onesiphorus, and you know how he helped me. It's interesting, these little few verses, they don't have a kind of command there to Timothy. They just have a you know, as if Timothy knows enough about these things and calling to mind these examples gives implicit commands of what you should do on the basis of these examples. And I think it works similarly with us today. So let's just check out these deserters first. Verse 15, Paul says that um, everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Now, he can't mean everyone without exception because he goes on to talk about Onesiphorus and he gives his greetings to a bunch of others at the end of the letter. And he probably means there are a whole bunch of key leaders throughout the churches in Asia, you know, modern-day Turkey. These key leaders have shunned him. Now, it's possible that Phygelus and Hermogenes um, disassociated from Paul when he got arrested. That's possible. You know, the shame or the, the sort of, the, well, maybe he's not all he's cut out to be and maybe he's not the real deal. It's also possible that, you know, like Hymenaeus and Philetus of 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2.17, um, these guys became false teachers who were kicking around the place. We know there's lots of that going on. He speaks about it in first, first letter to Timothy and he sees the same things going on in his second letter. So that's going on as well. That's possible. And I take it that the reason that Paul wants to, um, you know, throughout these pastoral epistles, um, fix Timothy firmly in place and why he puts down all these sort of ordination requirements in these epistles is because of that kind of instability going on there. Um, and I, I reckon, and I'm sure you agree, that, that, that um, prominent deserters can cause a bit of instability, can't they? They can kind of scandalise the church or raise things and maybe make people a little bit unstable. And, you know, you can think of just in the last year, recent examples perhaps, and, you know, sort of um, heavy sort of heavyweight or, or sort of popular um, figures who've apostatised. 
You can think of you know, Joshua Harris, the author of the I Kiss uh, Dating Goodbye books, who posted a picture up on um, Instagram of you know, looking away at the mountains and the lake and uh, basically said he's lost his faith. You can think of the story about the, the bloke, um, the Hillsong uh, songwriter Marty Sampson, who was having uh, serious doubts about his faith. Or even before that, you can think about Rob Bell, the guy who was doing all the Numa books and videos and the emerging church guy who just lost it all. Maybe you can think of someone quite close to you. Maybe you know someone recently who's taken that path. Maybe someone close, maybe, maybe even a, you know, a family member. And that's, that's, you know, this is tragic stuff. Now, I can think of one bloke from my year at college who deserted his wife and kids, deserted his church, deserted, tragically, his God. I reckon, you know, it's partly, at least for these kind of reasons, that, um, that this part of the scripture is here for us today. In fact, it's part of the, these reasons that, that so often throughout church services, throughout the ages, uh, as, as Jane reminded us the other day, that, that Psalm 95 would be read out at the top of the service, right at the start. Come, let us bow down in worship. And then today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. It's great that we had the psalm and indeed the Bible reading and the prayer before the Bible reading today, but we really lose something, I think, in our kind of popular church culture of singing sermon sandwiches when we forget to say, this is, a real, this is the real deal. This is the word of God that matters. Don't harden your hearts. It's great that we pray before the Bible readings, the lessons. So let's not harden our hearts this morning. Let's come to the voice of the Lord. Let's look at these last few verses, 16 to 18. Come with soft hearts to the example of Onesiphorus. Paul recounts how uh, he refreshed me and wasn't ashamed of my chain, singular, interestingly enough. It's his imprisonment. In fact, he says, when I was in Rome, or when he was in Rome, rather, he searched hard for me until he found me. We don't, we don't actually know quite what went on with Onesiphorus and um, how he sort of found Paul or what went on there, what are the nitty-gritty details. It's interesting with these characters. This is basically all we got. We've got a few other references later in this epistle um, to Onesiphorus, but that's it. But what do we know? Well, we know a few things. This little description here of searching hard for Paul, it's a, it's a sort of a different little angle on Paul's house arrest that we get at the end of Acts where people seem to be coming and going and, and coming to visit him. It's, it's like Onesiphorus had to scour around for Paul to find him. It's like he had to sort of stick his neck uh, out, or stick his head up looking for him. It's very probable that there were sort of hostile authorities that made it difficult for him to find Paul. But when he found him, Onesiphorus refreshed him. That's a beautiful word. It refreshed him. Um, It's sort of an unusual word in in the New Testament. We don't really know kind of quite what's going on. It's a reinvigorating, a refreshing, a rejuvenating. It's the same word in the Greek used to translate Judges 15.19. And you probably don't know what that is off the top of your head, but I'll tell you. You know the story. It's just after Samson thrashed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. We all know that story. It's a cracker. And just after that story, a cracker literally, just after that story, 
After that story, Seth Seth is parched. He's so parched he thinks he's going to die. And he cries out to the Lord that he might provide him with some water. And the Lord miraculously provided water out of a hollow place. And that water returned Samson's strength and refreshed him, rejuvenated him. You know, it's kind of hard for us to imagine what that would have been like for Paul. You know, he's in prison. He's under kind of cruel, cruel, cruel rain. And here we are in Newtown, sitting around in comfy chairs, air-conditioned room, rain outside, roof over our heads, freed in a country that permits us to freely worship. It's kind of, there's a bit of a disconnect. But, you, you know, there are many Christians all around the world that know what this is like, who are currently in prison for their faith, who know what it's like to be visited in prison and know what that refreshing is like. You can imagine an Asia Bibi, you know, recently released Christian from Pakistan. You can imagine what she would have felt like when the occasional visitor came to refresh her, renew her and give her some joy. Or you can think about imprisoned pastors in China, Wang Yi or John Chow, in prison. Imagine what it would be like if they were allowed visitors, how their hearts would leap what sort of joy and refreshment they get out of that. It would be remarkable, huge refreshment, rejuvenation, revival. And it's interesting, just as Onesiphorus eventually got there and found Paul, Paul prays that Onesiphorus and his household might eventually find God's mercy. The same kind of mirrors this finding concept and applies it to Onesiphorus, finding God's mercy. And is there, you know, is there any better way to return the favour than to pray for the salvation of someone and their family? What a great thing. To, someone does you a good turn and someone's kind to you, rejuvenates and refreshes you to pray for their salvation and their family's salvation. You know, it's one of these... I don't think that Paul's suggesting that Onesiphorus and his family just aren't saved. I think it's one of those classic wish prayers of Paul where he's, he's pretty confident about the outcome, actually, and he's really just trying to emphasise the Lord's saving power. And in this case, the Lord's mercy. That when Onesiphorus meets his maker in all of the, like we said in the psalm, the splendour and glory and power and majesty... Um, I mean, I don't know, it's hard to put words on that, right? Just, to, just imagine what that's going to be like. Then when Onesiphorus comes to that place and meets his maker, our maker too, then Onesiphorus might receive tender mercy, actually. Tender mercy, come in, pass into glory. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what Paul's praying for him. So we've got Phagellus, Hermogenes, we've got Onesiphorus. That's quite the contrast. You know, to be ashamed or not to be ashamed, that's the question. And at one level, the question is, Timothy, will you be ashamed of the Apostle Paul? Timothy, will you be ashamed about sticking up for a social and political outcast of a Christian leader? Will you be ashamed about Paul's teaching about the uniqueness of Christ in a city with a whole bunch of different religions? Will you be ashamed about Paul's teaching about the lordship of Christ in an economy that thrives on the worship of material idols? Will you be ashamed or even embarrassed about Paul's sexual ethics in a confused culture that boasts in depravity? 
Where Paul's implicit challenge is easily transposed to us, isn't it? But at another level, the bigger question is, Timothy, will you, will you be ashamed to testify about our Lord? And that is, by the way, the same Lord who said, if anyone's ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And that's the same Lord who on the night before he died broke bread and gave it to his disciples, knowing that one of them would betray him, actually. The same Lord to whom each of them said, surely not I. The same Lord from whom they all fled when he was arrested. And so that question, will you be ashamed to testify about our Lord? Well, that's a question for us too. And I think, you know, on the one hand, all of us would um, pretty quickly and rightly, I think, want to say, surely not I. But on the other hand, each of us would, I think, also confess that there have been moments perhaps phases where we've operated out of embarrassment or cowardice concerning Christ. And all we've got to do is think about our movements in the last week up and down King Street and shops and amongst unbelievers and things we've said and things we've shied away from saying and haven't had the courage to say just to sort of do a bit of a check on that. And even if we've not flat out deserted the Lord, uh, we might have you know, run away from testifying about our Lord. We might have skirted some circumstances where we might have otherwise suffered for the gospel. Well, I think this part of the Bible actually is an encouragement for us today into that situation. You know, I, I said at the start that it's, it's like it's sort of holding up two big signs for us and uh, these two examples are a huge help for our ministry, saying, you know, don't go that way and do go that way. I think there's a reason why Paul spends a bit more time on the, the second side saying, go that way. So I want to encourage you this morning um, to go the way of being unashamed. Be unashamed about our, our church leaders who stand up and get ridiculed in the media for their stance on abortion. Be unashamed about our church leaders who stick their neck out for God's good design of marriage. Be unashamed about our church leaders who sound utterly crazy for their insistence on the uniqueness of Christ and his saving work. And be unashamed about them, not just for their sake, but actually because you're unashamed about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about loyalty to people, it's about loyalty to him. Be unashamed about him and his gospel because you know the power of God in the gospel, the salvation for everyone who believes. That's the power of God. So why would you be ashamed about that? Crazy. And you know that personally, that, that merciful work of God in Christ at Calvary for you or for me, you know that without that you've got nothing, right? So if you know that, why on earth would you be ashamed of it? That's a sort of insane, actually. Uh, I mean, and I look around the room and I think, here are these brothers and sisters, legends training for ministry, and, and wouldn't it be great just to look around the room and think, yeah, we'll see each other on that last day of mercy, brothers and sisters, unashamed, because we love what Jesus has done for us. We're unashamed about the gospel. That's a beautiful thought, right? That's a thought to encourage us. I'll give you one last encouragement, and that is this. Um, the Jesus, after he rose uh, from the dead, many of you will know, we had the, the reading of Peter coming you know, to sort of have a look. We know that after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus shared a meal uh, with all people. He shared a meal with Peter and others, but he shared a meal with Peter. And that's a remarkable thing, given Peter's shame and 
and denial and fleeing, deserting Jesus, you know, denying him three times, that imperfect apostle Peter. And then on the other hand, we've got the perfect and merciful Jesus who asked him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Well, I want to say that as we come to the Lord's table this morning, as we eat with Jesus ourselves, we come as imperfect people and we must know that we have a perfect and merciful Saviour. And Jesus asks us, he gives us a picture of the Gospel and asks us this morning, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He doesn't expect us to be perfect, perfectly unashamed followers of him. No, no, not at all. He expects imperfect but forgiven followers with a true and lively faith in his finished work of mercy at the cross. After all, just as he was toward the imperfect Paul, just as he was toward the imperfect Timothy, just as he was toward the imperfect Onesiphorus, so he is, Jesus Christ, the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. Let's pray. Our Saviour Jesus Christ, we love you and we're grateful for your mercy. Help us to be unashamed of you and run the race together that we might come to that last day glad. And as we eat and drink together today, help us know your mercy towards us, frail, imperfect, but forgiven sinners. Amen.